uh, he would get drunk at night and pull his car in front of our house and fire shots in our windows in every room of the every all the front of the house except for my room. I'm sorry, who did this? My father. And that's just part of his story. With a past like that, it's no surprise that my friend Jason Prinzo, who you just heard, has had a severe battle with anxiety his entire life. His story, how he manages his anxiety, and more, all in this week's podcast. We put the men in mental health. This is Mental Health Monday. It's a Rigs Off the Radio podcast. Here we go. Mental Health Monday is an informational podcast and should not be used to replace the specialized training and professional judgment of a healthcare or mental health care professional. Mental Health Monday can't be held responsible for the use of the information provided. Please always consult a trained mental health professional before making any decision regarding treatment of yourself or others. Self-help information and podcasts and information on the internet is useful, but it's not always a substitute for professional assistance. Unless other Otherwise noted, guests of Mental Health Monday are not doctors or licensed in any way. Our hope is to make a connection with you and be more open and honest about everyone's mental health. Enjoy the podcast. So thanks for uh, thanks for hanging out with me today. Yeah, man. I didn't realize you were such a big mental health advocate. I've known you for, I'm going to say 20 years. Yeah, I've been close to it. You were one of the first people I talked to in my radio career in yep. Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yep. On the phone, Jason Prinzo. Now, what exactly do you do for a living so people can kind of get a grasp of uh, what you do for work? So I'm a, uh, a consultant for major record labels. And, and essentially what I do is uh, my company's hired by the labels to work hand in hand with their promotion teams to help market and promote artists to radio stations around sure. the country. So a lot of high stress, I would imagine. Uh, some plenty situation. of high stress. Like yeah. instead of having one boss, I've got like seventeen of them. Well, so <laughs> you you make three happy in a week and fourteen mad, and right. so you just got to rotate them every week. Sure. And you have uh, you dealt with anxiety specifically? Is that kind of what you're? That's kind of where you? Yeah, I kind of discovered that I I always thought it was depression. I was diagnosed with depression when I was eighteen. My 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 first foray into therapy started when I was in first grade, but. I always thought I had depression. I was told that I had a chemical imbalance due to my father's drug use. But, you know, this was early on back in like the Prozac days when Prozac first came out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't even think anxiety was a specific kind of genre for, you know. Yeah, they're like you just worry too yeah, much. Yeah, like, you, you know, you're depressed. So you take depression medication. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got married that there was an incident uh, during the honeymoon. And my wife said, you have anxiety so bad, like you need to go get your anxiety checked out. And I was against it. I had always been against medication, mainly because when I was when I was on Prozac, when I was younger, I was 21 at the time. And the idea of spending 60 years on medication scared the heck out of me. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I was ignorant to how mental illness worked then. And I just thought, you know what? I'm going to come off this medication and I'm just going to, I'm going to be positive. I'm going to take the positive route. Okay. And uh, it's going to be mind over matter. And I spent the next 17 years. Shoving it down? Just a ball of stress. I bet. And, uh, you know, look, power of positive thinking works in a lot of crazy ways, but it can't overcome mental illness. At least it couldn't for me. And so the incident, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point when we're talking today, like led me to get checked out for anxiety and once I started on the anxiety medication it was like oh man I wish I would have wish I would have done this 30 years ago like yeah. what would my life have become or how would I've gotten through life not having these uh these worries and this stress that was unrealistic 
No. Well, that's good because a lot of people, men in particular, are afraid of taking medication. You don't want to be a zombie. You don't want to be right. walking around not yourself and right. not feeling like you anymore. That's your thing, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. Because your job probably depends a lot on your personality and your relationships and how you work with others. 100%. You don't want to switch that at all. Right. And, and for me personally, I'm an outgoing introvert. I'm yeah. naturally introverted. And because of you know my childhood, we bounced around a lot when I was a kid. I went to eight schools in 12 years. Um, we were kind of on the run from my father the whole time. So my father was really violent. And um, it taught me to be an extrovert in an introvert's body. Yeah. And so if I'm not right, you know, as an adult, if I'm not in a right state, I can't pick up the phone and call people and discuss selling you know, something or, you know what I mean? Like yeah. trying to get them to, to convince them to do something that I need if I'm not in the right frame of mind. Like I can't even pick up the phone and call somebody. So yeah. for me, the medication and, and making sure that I'm on the right path is super important for me, not just from a personal level, but it's part of what I do every day as a profession. I can't, I can't function that way. Yeah. So where did the low point hit when you finally knew that, because you said you were masking it for a while, so, you, were, you got off the depression medication, you were just managing it on your own Yeah, so for the, a while. The, there, were, there were a couple, look, there were a lot of incidents. Um, therapy started for me, um, I'm going to back all the way up to when I was six. Right. Um, and my, you still, do you still, th- still th- see a therapist, by the way? Yes. Cool. Yeah. I just yeah, want to check on that too because yeah, I do sure. and it's it's great. It, it, it's fantastic. And if you're listening, even if you don't think you have anything, go talk to a therapist. <laughs> it's great to have an impartial it, it third is. party to your life. Right. <laughs> Look, everybody's favorite subject is themselves. So if I can get an hour to talk about myself of to course. somebody that's going to just sit and listen, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, dude. I hear you. So when I was a kid, you know, my father, my, my, my father was a truck driver, so he was very rarely around. And when he was around, he was he was violent. He was an alcoholic, and yeah. you know he would he would tell us that he was going to go get milk, and then we'd see him two weeks later or something like that, right? Uh, like, one of those quintessential, yeah, the ones you see on TV, dads. Yeah, wow. exactly, exactly. And and like you know, he would take me to his quote unquote friend's house to play with their kids, and the friend was like the woman he was seeing on the side. So we had to do a we had a in first grade, we had to do a, a family portrait. We had to draw a family portrait in our class. Oh, God. And my family portrait was me and my mom taking my dad out of a bar because that was, that was my reality. That's what I knew. And it was like so old school cartoon with like the top hat. And, you know, he was like in a tuxedo, which right. I don't think my dad's ever worn a tuxedo no. before, but like <laughs> bubbles coming out of his mouth and everything. Yeah, the like, on his eyes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, that quickly got a phone call home from the teacher you know, with some I concerns. Bet, yes. So, uh, so I started in therapy there. My parents ended up marrying and divorcing each other twice. They got divorced when I was five, remarried when I was six, and divorced again when I was seven. Oh wow! So I always say they didn't mess me up enough the first time. They had to go back yeah. and do it again to really make sure they well, like really stomped out the up. cigarette. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. So um, I just thought I was just a sad kid. Right, like I didn't know. Like I, I knew that that growing up, that there were days I'd wake up and just want to cry. I knew that I had these weird feelings in my stomach that were making me sick because I was nervous about stuff just out of the blue, and I wouldn't know why. You know, and I, I know now that it was all anxiety, but this lasted up until I was, you know, eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old, and I, I thought this is just how everybody feels. It was normal to you. It was normal to me. And I was, you know, I grew, grew up with a single mother. It was just me and my mom. And she worked a lot. So I was home by myself a lot. And I was the man of the house. And I was, you know, even with my mom around, I had to be the man, you know, like I had to be the caretaker, you know, 
all the masculine things that need to be done. And that's where a lot of the stigma comes from with men in general. Yes, cause exactly. you, you got to put on a face, push exactly. it all down and you know, yeah. And where I grew up, I grew up in Cincinnati and the West side of Cincinnati is very, very blue collar. I always say Pete Rose went to my high school. Obviously he's older than I am, but he is the quintessential West side of Cincinnati guy. You gamble, yeah. you drink, yep. you chase women and you work really hard and that's your life. That's it. Right? Like there's no, there's no crying. <laughs> there's no, there's no hugging. There's no, no there's none of that. And, there's no, I had a bad day. Right. Yeah. Right. So, and growing up without a father, um, I didn't have a, any sort of like male lead in my life. So I went through the early stages of my life trying to be what I thought a man was supposed to be, which has been good, but it, it's, it, it, it's self-destructive at the same time because you go ultra masculine yeah. in did your you, thoughts. Did you feel like you just wanted to be better than your father a better uh, thousand percent that's it all was you, my it was, was my daily motivation was that i was going to be better my, i wasn't going to be what my father was as long as i'm better than my dad yeah i'm good yeah if if i woke up and didn't want to go to work it was that's what my dad would do i can't do that yeah so my father uh my father was in and out of my life all through my childhood so between that moving around it kind of developed a lot of abandonment issues for me uh, when i was 16 my father my father had moved to Las Vegas when I was eight. At that time, my mother started dating again. And you keep in mind, this is Cincinnati, 1980. Oh, yeah. West Side. Okay. And my mother's first serious boyfriend was uh, an African-American man named John Macon. And John Macon and I, John was my guy. John and I were really, really close. But in 1980, small, white, Italian woman, black guy, not a good scene, right? No, they so weren't, they weren't having that. So between my father, who hadn't left for Vegas yet, uh, he would get drunk at night and pull his car in front of our house and fire shots in our windows ex- in every room of the every all the front of the house except for my room. I'm sorry, who did this? My father. Jesus. My father would do that, or he would wait for us to leave the house. He would chase us with his car, and he would smash his car into the side of our car. We would have to do loops around the the neighborhood until we got a big enough lead that I could jump out of the car and go into the house and call the police. Oh my God. So on the heels of that, the neighbors started acting out about John living in the neighborhoods. So we had a bowling ball thrown through our car window. Oh, cause uh, a black guy was living. Yeah, in cause a black guy's living in the neighborhood. Oh, okay. And you know, the police would come, we'd file a police report, you know, the police would come and like, it was the house that we lived in with my father when they were married and he had left, some of his bullet case, you know, his bullets were still in the house and they matched the ones that were in our wall. We're like, look, we know who this is. And yeah. the cops look around and see my mom, see her boyfriend. And they're like, that's eh, neighbors acting out. You guys are on your own. So it started a trend for me of, of really unhealthy relationships, just in the sense of I didn't trust that anybody was ever going to stay around between moving and my father, it was always like, all right, everybody kind of has, there's an egg timer on everybody. Yeah. Uh, my father moved back when I was 16. We started hanging out, you know, cause we would only maybe talk like maybe once a year, twice a year. And, um, he told me he was moving back to Vegas and I got really upset and I sat him down. I said, dad, I, it's the first time I've ever had my father. I need my father. I'm 16 years old. Well, yeah. Plus, I, you've been bouncing in and out, and he's right. pushed you through enough. He was, right. For and Christ's now, sake, he was shooting at you guys. Right. <laughs> and now we're at this place where, like, we're hanging out. And uh, my father said, I didn't realize this meant so much to you. I'm staying. If, if, if this is what you want, then, I, then this is what I'm going to do. He goes, I just need to go back to Vegas and get my things, and I'll move everything here. It's like, cool. 
It was eight months before I heard from him again. Never came back. Uh, um, so for, that's that's for milk again. Yeah. So that's when I had the I need to rip the bandaid off of this and just move move on. So I cut my father out of my life, and then when I was um, twenty one, my uh, little cousin was murdered, and that was when I started. I was on Prozac. I started going to therapy because I was dealing with stuff with my father. Were you very, very close with this cousin? Um, I wouldn't say we weren't best friends, but we were close. We went to high school together. He was a year younger than me. Um, Still, we, that's going to affect you. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't super close with my uncle, but he, when he died by suicide, I mean, that was that, right. was, that shook me. Yeah, I can't imagine sure. a murder either. So I'm, I'm on Prozac. I'm trying to get better. I'm not necessarily feeling great, but the Prozac is helping. And so... I'm laying in bed the night, you know, I found out that my, my cousin was murdered. I went to my aunt's house. She's clearly upset. He was, he was murdered by his best friend. And I remember going home that night going, boy, my life sucks. I have a car that barely runs. I still live at home. I have a job that I hate. I got no future. Your father's bouncing my out. My father's, you know what I mean? I don't have a father. Like, and now my cousin died. Yeah. And it was a, a really... Um, I realized how selfish I was being at that point, right? Because I was thinking about how my cousin died and it was affecting me. So I said, I'm, I got a new lease on life. You know, I'm going to live life. If my cousin Keith knew that he was going to die July 17th, 1995, how would he have lived the last six months? Yeah. And which is great in theory, right? Like I'm like, he would, wouldn't have let traffic ruin his day. Like he would enjoy the time he spent with his friends. Every, yeah. Everything would have been gravy. And I go, I'm going to live my life like that. Yeah. And I'm going to be positive. And uh, that just did not work out for me. No. <laughs> it, you know, the, the mind over matter thing was just not going to work. So, but I didn't know. Like, I was just like, this is just, my, my friends used to call it, it's Jason being Jason. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's a lot of layers to my story. So I'm sorry if I'm kind of going all over the place. No, it's you're just, good. You're good. Um, was it ever to a, like, that dark enough place where you were contemplating taking your life and suicide type thing? Was I'll it say ever, this. Ever to that, Even to this day. That? Even to this day, I don't think about killing myself, but I think that if something happened, I'd be okay with it. Like, I'm not, there's a relief involved in the idea of death. You're not afraid of dying? I'm not afraid of dying. But you don't, you don't wish it upon yourself? I don't, I don't think about how I would do it. Okay. Right? Like, I don't have plans. I don't, I never planned out, like, here's how I'm going to do it. This day, I just think, like, hey, man, if... You know, if when there were something sitting here, if there were a gun sitting here, like I could do it and be okay with it. But when it's your time, it's your time. Type yeah. Thing. Okay. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I, I go through all that stuff. There were my anxiety and my issues. With my father were making, it was all coming out in angry ways. And, um, you know, we bounced around a lot. We grew up poor and I luckily found myself in a, uh, industry and a business that allowed me to have a life that I never thought I would have. You know, I'm traveling the country, um, you know, going to the Grammys. I'm, I'm doing all these things that I'm completely unqualified for. And I feel out of place in every situation that I'm in because in my mind, everybody around me has lived this great life. Um, they deserve to be there. They're the cool kids. And why am I here? Why am thinking. I here? Uh, it's, it's classic imposter syndrome, right? But what happened was I assumed everybody saw me as the 15-year-old kid that was broken. And I would go out. Me and my, say me and my wife would be out. And this is as of a few years ago, and therapy has really gotten me through this. 
we would be somewhere, we'd be at a bar or an event, and somebody would walk in the room. A guy would walk in a room that would be like, good looking guy, looked like he had his shit together, excuse my language. Yeah, whatever. Um, and I automatically assumed that guy looked at me and was laughing. Even though he has no idea that I'm in the room, right? He's in the other part of the room. Didn't know who you are. Didn't know who I was. Never met him. He's in- wondering, why is this guy here, right? Interesting. And so as the night goes on, I'm having an argument with my head, in my head with this guy. We're arguing. He has no idea who I am that I'm even in the room, but I'm having an argument. So by the time, if he makes his way around the room and he's going to the bar to get a drink and bumps into me, I've been arguing with him for an hour. I'm on 11, right? This guy, this guy has, oh has no idea what's going on. He bumps into me, and I'm like, hey, man, what are you doing? Like, watch where you're going, and I'm off. And it was all me putting a mirror to my face, and it was my own insecurities about myself, of feeling like I didn't belong and that I wasn't supposed to be in this position. Yeah. And, well, and that can get you was, in trouble in public. 100%. I mean, my wife, there were times when my wife would like, I don't, I'm afraid to go out because I don't know when you're going to like pop off on yeah. somebody. And it wasn't like I was going out and getting into fistfights all the time. It was just, you could feel it hitting the room. Yeah. When this I would doesn't go to sound like place. Jason being Jason. This sounds like which Jason's going to show up tonight. <laughs> right. Which right. Jason's here. So <laughs> I, I, I would snap on my friends all the time because if, you know, they were late or something like that, like I would get really irritated. So I, I knew that, I knew that there was something wrong, but I didn't know exactly what it was. Yeah. At that point, I didn't even know where it stemmed from. I just thought this is just who I am. And so I was explaining to you earlier when we were talking, uh, my anxiety would come out in weird ways where uh, if I was on the phone, if I called my boss at the time and he didn't pick up, from the time it would take me to take the phone from my ear and hang it up, my mind would go, he's not picking up. He's mad at me. I'm going to get fired. We're going to lose the house. My wife's going to leave me. I'm going to be, you know, living in a studio apartment. Classic anxiety spiraling out of control again. Totally. Again. Totally. And, and, and as much as I would tell myself, this is ridiculous, there was no stopping it. Right. It was my reality. And, and that's the mental illness part that I try to explain to people. Like you can't, you can't tell somebody, Hey, what do you have to be upset about? Just be happy. You know, it I think doesn't it, work that way. Not right? to make a joke of it, but I've heard knock knock. Who's there? Anxiety. What's wrong? <laughs> nothing. Oh my God, you're right. Nothing's wrong. Yeah. Oh my God, nothing is <laughs> right. wrong. What's no? Right. Yeah. But there's no there's no talking yourself out of it because no. it's just your reality. And we were on our honeymoon. We were in Las Vegas, and um, we flew in on a Saturday, yeah. and we were staying at like Wednesday, Sunday, Saturday, Sunday. I'm good. We're having a blast. Monday, we have a cabana by the pool. And so now Monday's a work day, and I'm, I'm on vacation. My wife sat in the pool. I sat in the cabana on my phone the entire time because in my mind, if I wasn't working and things went bad at work, they're, they're it was going to be you. my fault because I was gone. They're going to replace me. Yeah. And if things went really good, it was, well, Jason's not here. We had a great day. We don't need him. Let's fire him. So You can't win in your own mind. No. So I worked. And my wife was so, legitimately and, and reasonably was so upset with me. Of course, me. yeah. And I was having a meltdown at the airport. And she was like, you, uh, if we're going to continue this relationship, you have to get help. Yeah. And um, that, was, that was the wake-up call for me because it's, it's one thing to kind of ruin your life. Right, or to put your, you know, to go through it yourself, and you go home every day and you deal with it. And I get some, somebody you, you love through it. Mm-hmm. I, that's the first time I was like, okay, I, I need to listen and go get help. Yeah. And my doctor put me on some anti-anxiety medication at the time, yeah. and it was Celexa, and it was the absolute boost that that I needed. It was 
helpful from the jump. So now the medication is helping you, and you're yes. still using that to this date. Yes. I've changed a couple of times. Okay. Which is normal. A lot of people it go is. through that. Um, and don't it, be afraid if you, if you get on a medication to tell your doctor or your psychiatrist, yo, this is not working for me. Yes. This isn't jiving with me. Because they know they've got a Rolodex of other things right. they can use right. that'll help. And, and the difficult thing with that is you don't know what's going to work, right? Yeah. So, you know, and everything takes a good, like, four to six weeks to kick in. So the idea of switching can be daunting sometimes. You're thinking, well, what if this new one doesn't work? Exacerbates it, makes it worse. Yeah, it makes it worse. Uh, a side story, my, my business partner suffers as well. And um, last year, around this time, his doctor, he, they wanted to switch his medication, so his doctor didn't wean him off properly and weaned him off too fast, and he fell into a two-month depression where I couldn't talk to him on the phone without him crying. And I would say, well, you know, well, what are you, you know, are you upset about anything? He's like, no, I just can't stop crying. Yeah. I can't get out of bed. And, and so, you know, I think that's one of those things that can keep people from trying medication because it can make it worse. And the idea of, uh, well, I'm going to take six weeks. I hope this works. If it doesn't, I've got another six weeks of trying something yeah. else. But in the end, when you find one that really works, it's, it clicks. It, it clicks, and it's really helpful. What do you do outside of the medication? What else do you do for your self-help that's not medication-related? So, physical fitness. I know you do a lot of boxing. You're yeah, of- I, I do a lot of physical fitness. Um, that's been really helpful for me. Yeah. Um, it, it's definitely a release. Uh, you know, Anything that you read that has to do with depression and mental health, you know, exercise is one of the first things you talk about. Always, yeah. And as basic as it sounds, it's one of the best things. It, it, it releases yeah. it. Even if you just go out for a walk, you know, if you just go for a walk for an hour, yeah. anything that, that gets the heart rate up and it releases some endorphins and just makes you feel better. I started, because I have trouble sleeping, um, I was looking for something to do that, you know, if I was going to be awake all these hours, what's something constructive I can do? So I started painting. Um, I've always loved art. I've always been uh, a bit of a creative. Yeah. And for me, what I found, and, and through talking with other people, I found that, that other people do something similar. But painting for me really is a great distraction because it's an outlet, but yet as I'm painting, there's nothing else that you can think about. That's what you're focused on right one there. thing in front of you, and, and it all kind of clears your mind. And that's Damn. why they have all these, the, the coloring books and things like that. The adult coloring oh, yeah, books they're are great. great for that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So your, your physical fitness and everything. So how is what's your what's your prognosis now? You just you're managing it, just coasting with it now. Yeah, I'm managing. Do you feel it. like you've? I don't feel like you've. Do you feel like you've conquered it? I don't think. No, you have. I don't never feel like I conquered it. No, um, but you're definitely keeping it in check. I'm definitely keeping it in check. There's a, there's a lot of things that I don't think that I'll ever get over. Right. Um, I tell people for me, anxiety, aside from the mental part, is I am a ball of stress. When when I sleep at night, my my fists are, are clenched. My, and my wife will literally undo my hands. My neck hurts all the time because my shoulders are always up. I constantly curl my toes in my shoes at, you know, at all times. And so my back hurts. My feet hurt. And I have to remind myself, unclench your, you know, unclench your hands. Let breathe. your shoulders down. Breathe. breathe. Because it's just it's such a part of my everyday life. Even if my mental state is in a good place, physically, I'm still you know, all wound up. But um, now I'm at a place where uh, I'm probably healthier than I've ever been mentally. Yeah. Um, Do you find talking about it a lot helps you as well? 
It does. Speaking about it. It does. Getting it out of your system and not being you know ashamed what? of it. You're right. certainly not ashamed of it, which is great, too, because a lot of dudes are, especially yeah. anxiety and uh, depression. And, and depression. And, and look, the, one of the things we, you know, we discussed before we started the podcast was how for men, and we live in an ultra-masculine society, and, and we're now just starting to talk about these things. And as I was saying earlier, from where I grew up, it was a masculine place. Like, it was gambling and drinking. And you don't talk about emotions. And, and I needed to realize that, especially with the advent of, of social media, everybody puts their best foot forward. And if That's a highlight reel of everyone's life. Right. It's a highlight reel of everyone's life. You're and, not putting a picture of you with your fist balled up right. in a stress ball. Right. And nobody wants, nobody's yeah. going to like that. And you don't want to put that on Facebook And or also Instagram. you're sitting there on your couch and it looks like everybody's doing something beside you. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh my God, they're at dinner. This person's on vacation. I'm stuck on my couch. Right. What am I doing with my what life? What am I doing? I'm my thumbing like through. Stuff. I don't have any friends. They're, look at all the, like, they got 10 people in this picture, right? Yeah. I don't have a picture with 10, but I don't have 10 friends, you know, whatever it is. But I realized that I was doing that same thing, right? My, my posts and everything were all highlights because I, I try not to put anything negative out. And I just wanted to make a statement. And I did it one day on Facebook where I was like, look, I've got a great life. I really, really do. I'm super blessed. Where I'm not blessed is that I don't get to enjoy it because my my brain won't allow me to enjoy my life the way that I should. Yeah, and I've earned, I've earned what I have, and I've earned the the ability to enjoy it. And while all you guys may see all these great things and it looks like I have this great life, I struggle every day, and I know a lot of other people struggle every day. And just know, I understand. You're, you're not, not alone, and you're either. not alone, and I get it. And this, this is what I suffer from, and, and I'm, I'm going to take the blanket off. I'm, I'm taking the curtain down at this point yeah. and showing you that, even though it looks gravy on social media, it, it's not all good. What's the response like from people it when, when you said that? Was unbelievable, in um, a good way, in a great way. Yeah, um, I had people. You know, we all have people on social media that we aren't friends friends with but we know through sure. social media and stuff like that i had so many direct messages of people saying wow it makes me feel good to know that you go through this this is what happened to me as a kid and i've never dealt with it what are some things that i can do i i have friends that were professional athletes that uh you know played in the nfl for a decade that would come up to me on the side and go i didn't know you went through this i you know i've not talked to anybody about it and they would ask me questions or guys at the boxing, the boxing gym was crazy. I bet. Because there's so many people there that were suffering from stuff, but never wanted to talk about it. And there's probably guys at boxing gyms that are suffering from it, but don't even know that they are. Totally. Until you say that. Totally. And they go, wow, holy shit, I yeah. am dealing with anxiety. Right. And, and, and the boxing gym that I go to is, you know, it's, is mostly Hispanic. So, you know, as we discussed, minority men are off the charts when it comes to black, suicide Hispanic, rate, any right? sort of minority it's a, you got the stigma from the minority yeah from being black or hispanic yeah. you already got the stigma from that and you got the stigma that you're a man right and you got the stigma with a mental illness right. it's like tripling down yeah like so. and, and they don't tell you know you're you're taught to be tough I, like look, my best friend in the world is parents are from ghana and he was taught that you don't cry you know you're not men don't cry and like I'm thinking about it, I'm like, what a sad way to go through life, man. Yeah, like, that one, man makes me want to cry. Right. It's Telling a very me. natural emotion. Of course. And, but, but it is how we are taught as men. Yeah. And so we don't share things with each other. And we don't talk about our issues and our problems. And, and you know, when we talk about going to therapy, it's great to have somebody listen and kind of 
bounce stuff off of. Mm-hmm. But sometimes just talking things out leads you to your own answers, right? Just verbalizing it and you start connecting the dots. And that's where a lot of people miss out on not really um, taking their mental illness head on and and talking to somebody about it, even yeah. if it's not a therapist, if it's just a friend. Uh-huh. Just getting it out, man. Yeah. I agree. Help. 100%. And does it feel good talking about it today? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Man. And you've done work with NAMI as well. Yeah. The so National I, Association for Mental Illness, if you're not familiar. That's it, right? National yeah. Alliance of Mental, Mental Illness. Illness. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I work with them um, with the police department. So we, we work with police officers that are getting promoted and they have to go through what's called CIT training. Crisis intervention. Yes. Yeah. So we spend quite a bit of time with these guys, like discussing not only what to recognize in themselves, what to recognize in people they work with, but how to handle calls when they are out in the field. If somebody is having a panic attack or there's there things going on mentally that you, you, you can't approach that. Once you make the connection that that's probably what it is, you can't approach that the same way you approach somebody that's robbing a bank. Well, think right? of going back to your story earlier about the guy in the bar. Yeah. Let's say you shove that guy, the cops show up. Right. You're not angry at him. There's no confrontation yeah. between the two. That's something that was happening in your mind. Right. And somebody with the correct training would be able to say, hold on, let's talk to this guy yeah. for a second before right. we arrest him and throw him in yeah. jail yeah. and you know, convict him and everything yeah. and say, all right, this guy's going through something in his own mind. Right. He wasn't meaning to lash out as long as you know Joe D doesn't want to press charges, <laughs> right? Totally. You're okay. Totally. Which would make sense. Totally. Yeah. So you know, the, the, so it's it's always important to me, and what I what I tell the the cops, especially the male cops, is you know find somebody that you're really comfortable. Find one person in your life that you're comfortable with to, that you feel that you can go and talk to and and kind of hash things out and tell them how you're really feeling. But you also have to be that person for somebody else too. Mm-hmm. Um, be willing to listen and empathize yeah, if you can. Yeah, and and I think just taking that step is very very healthy because. As men, we tend to bottle everything up and Always, think that we yeah. can fix it. We're fixers. We are fixers. And, and women hate that, too. Yeah. Because you just want to fix shit. And they're like, I want you to fix it. I want you to listen to me. Right. I don't understand. I just want to fix it. Right. I want to make it go away. Yeah. When my <laughs> wife comes home and she's complaining about something, I'm not sympathetic. I go into, well, what can I do to make this right? Right. And then, that's not what they want to hear. No. <laughs> Sometimes so. listening is the, the the hardest thing to do, but it can also be the best thing for somebody. Yes. A hundred percent. When you can be a good listener. Yeah. Nice. Yep. Dude, thank you so much for talking today. I oh, really, man, I really, I, I'm so happy to, to be here and, you know, we've known each other for a long time. Yeah. So anytime. We've never had a real talk like this before. So. No. Well, cause we're, we're men. We don't That's talk right. about stuff. Yeah. Men, <laughs> we don't talk, but you damn well should, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So we put the men in mental health, right? Right. You can find out more about Jason Prinzo. Follow him on Twitter, Jason Prinzo, P-R-I-N-Z-O, or on Instagram, He's Jason underscore Prinzo, music executive by day, a boxing fan by night, an artist after midnight, and high on life. He's a mental health advocate and my good friend Jason Prinzo. Thanks for being on the podcast this week. I'll talk to you next time. Enjoy the rest of your day, your weekend, your afternight, your morning, whatever you're doing. And always remember, make good life decisions.